Hello, I'm David Hardacre, and this is the Finzia podcast series on fintech, where digital disruption comes to financial services. We're exploring the big question. Will digital innovators kill the incumbents of banking and finance? I recall the first time I saw HTML and the first time I saw internet browsers and thinking, wow, this is pretty cool and being excited by it. Um, I had the same sort of feeling, sort of deja vu feeling about the impact that blockchain can provide to the world, only because it starts to fundamentally test the assumptions of things we've taken for granted. So when you start to think about that impact, um, yes, I do believe it can be as large as the internet's impact. That's fintech consultant David G. He's a mentor at the Tyro Fintech Hub and he's talking about the blockchain, the new frontier in digital disruption. The blockchain has the potential to make financial transactions cheaper, faster and more secure and many believe to overhaul the global banking system. Now, if you ask us what sort of disruption is going to be, no one really can tell you exactly what's going to be, but there's going to be disruption. That's for sure. It's just what shape it's going to take in the next two to five years. Daniel Biondi is Hewlett-Packard Enterprise Fellow and Chief Technology Officer for Financial Services at Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. And he's been advising startups and venture capitalists on the blockchain. When you look at what banks are trying to do, they're experimenting. They're setting up labs, they're doing proof of concepts, they're partnering with a number of smaller startups. Major banks like UBS, Santander Bank, etc. they are testing that internally. And these global banks, um, one of the uh, use cases is around foreign exchange. Because in that way, when they exchange money or they move funds amongst their subsidiaries, they don't have to pay a higher cost like they're paying today. So that will be one example. The story of blockchain is the great whodunit of the finance world. Back in 2008, someone calling themselves Satoshi Nakamoto published what amounted to a declaration of war on the world's financial system. Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever that is, we don't know, detailed a revolutionary way to send online payments directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. To remove banks from the equation, Nakamoto introduced a cryptocurrency called Bitcoin as a peer-to-peer version of electronic cash. Bitcoins have since come to be accepted as a legitimate form of payment for goods and services, but it's also become a favoured form of currency for criminals. Clearly he's a shadowy figure who has kept himself in the dark and I think he's, you know, he's his work's been taken over by others and who have progressed the work. Clearly there's been, uh, it's been used by the dark web side mm-hmm. of things. Um, however, I, I, by the same token, there's opportunities for the, to use this for good. And as Dave mentioned, you know, the, some of the uses of Bitcoin in the past been used on the dark side and drug laws and all that, but also there's been used on, on the good side in terms of investing in companies and, and, and all that, right? So, which then takes us to what's the difference between Bitcoin and blockchain? The blockchain was developed as the underlying technology for all Bitcoin transactions. There's no centralised authority. Instead, there's a decentralised network of databases held on various computers. 
That means the ledger of transactions is distributed around the community of users. Each transaction is recorded and time-stamped as proof of who owns what at any point in time. The record is secure, permanent and cannot be changed. It is also public, so every participant can check if a transfer has come from the rightful owner. Each computer on the network must approve a transaction and this forms a chain of computer code which is built into a block. Altogether, the blockchain has been revolutionary because its technology was the first to prevent the double spending of money, a huge issue when it's so easy to duplicate assets in a digital form. This removes the need for a bank as the trusted third party to ensure ledgers are balanced and that money moving through the system is spent only once. The fundamentals of this is that basically you, you write details around into a block, right, um, of the transaction, time-stamped, and that transaction, once it's accepted by everybody in, in the system, which is called consensus, is then written in all the chains around the world. So it kind of sounds very inefficient in a way, but what it does mean, because it's written everywhere, that it's non reputable right? You know, once a transaction is locked in and I've sold um, this, this motor car to Daniel and he's paid me, then actually everybody records that and that chain of evidence and proof of, proof of work is actually built into the chain. That, that makes it very, very different to anything we have right now. Different in the sense that it is distributed around a community of users, if I can use that term, rather than it being held in a central place. Yeah, so because of the distributed nature, the consensus aspect of that and the non-repudiation aspects that you... It means that centralised bodies that do things like... Um, you know, credit checking, central banking, any sort of centralised activities can be challenged because it's, you start to change the dynamics of how people interact and it's 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 a peer-to-peer -peer interacting and then that's all then recorded and everybody knows exactly how much money I owe and he owes me and, and so forth. So you put your mind to any contract or anything we do from a commercial standpoint, we could record that in a blockchain. All those things to me are, are revolutionary and in our lifetime we'll start playing out. So is it right to say that it is the decentralising power of blockchain which has the potential to be revolutionary? That's absolutely right. Decentralised gives it the distinguishing features and gives it its power. For any players who are middlemen, it'll be quite different. And the question of the, on that will be where are the banks, where going, what role are they going to play? So the decentralisation that David was talking about, when you look at central banks and the different banks, blockchain is going to disrupt that is to what extent and what role they're going to play because they don't want to be disrupted and be disintermediated completely. I mean, the difficult thing, I think, maybe for people to get their head around is how you establish trust. Presently, your bank establishes trust. You go, okay, I'll leave that to the bank. Here you're being asked to establish trust between peers who've never met, who might not know each other, it seems to me. Am I right to look at it that way? Yeah, yeah you're right, but um, going back to your point of trust, who gave the trust to the banks would be the question, and it's us, because of we've traditionally done that for the last 300 years or more. Yeah, no, but, but, but there's a record, yeah, yeah. right? We, we know that yeah. I mean, uh, banks are regulated. They, if they yeah. fail to be trustworthy, they won't be used and they'll, yeah. they'll disappear. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So where I was going is you build that trust over the years, right? Now, that's one element. Now, if you go to blockchain, the way that David was describing on how a transaction is being done, then all that is locked in, and then you cannot alter those, those transactions, right? So there's trust between the parties 
Because that cannot be broken. The security that's built into the blockchain by nature is the fundamental aspect that creates the trust. With, with that security, it's not reputable. You can't go and change it once it's written. It's then written in, in all those nodes around the world, right? Yeah. So it's, it's committed. And so therefore, you, you have to trust it because it's, 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 it's transparent. On a bit of terminology, is a node anything more than my computer? Yeah, in simple terms, yes. Absolutely. So you can, like I said, you can use that same paradigm thinking around um, me, me sharing a song with Daniel. And I, I, I write a song, I compose it, I share it with Daniel and he pays me um, through the blockchain for the, to, to play that song ten times or one time. And the whole transaction will be done through the blockchain and then recorded and everybody sees that I've been paid, you know, my five cents right for playing that music. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and there's a tracking history of, you know, when I bought it, how many times I used it. And, you know, you, you can derive so much information from there and patterns of, you know, behaviour patterns and all those elements, right? Is it right to say that the transaction process is quicker and cheaper through blockchain? I think right now it's not been proven. I think definitely there, there are performance issues around the blockchain and how quickly it can actually get consensus in the network. Those challenges will be overcome over a period of time. Uh, however, I think if you understand, you know, how many trillions of dollars are being spent on, on banking technology around the world, clearly we can't keep going in that direction. And I know organisations, every bank has to spend large sums of money, you know, uh, on just compliance reporting, for example. Very, very important, of course, to, to make sure we don't have any more GFC or other issues around uh, regulatory issues, but uh, clearly there's, it's, it's a, not a high value added from a customer standpoint. Um, the blockchain can change that, right? You can actually start to have transactions from your systems written directly to a blockchain and then say, okay, okay Mr. Asic, Mr. Apra, please interrogate to your heart's content. It's all here. Now, at the moment, we don't do that. Big, big banks go and spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a reporting system uh, to do that. That's because they're working with old systems that are, aren't that flexible, able to be manipulated into the format required. And so that, that, those kinds of things have great promise. A United States-based fintech called Ripple has been working with Australian and global banks on how to harness the power of blockchain technology. Ripple is uh, well known to the top 100 banks in the world. Dilip Rao is the head of Ripple Asia Pacific and is based in Sydney. We've been talking to regulators around the world, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank. Here in Australia, we've been talking to the RBA, to APRA, to uh, ASIC. And there is a huge appetite to see how the technology could be leveraged. So we think that uh, promise of this technology is certainly creating interest. And now I think we have to execute. And this is what we are doing now. We are working with banks to implement commercial solutions. And I think over 2016, 2017, you will see uh, these things move from being experiments as they were in 2015 to being real world implementations with the real customers. And I think once we pass that, that's when you will see a rapid scaling of this across the world as people recognise the value that it delivers. It seems to be a long way removed from 2008-2009 when Satoshi Nakamoto published a white paper on the blockchain and then we had Bitcoin, which seems to kind of explore the, the dark arts of, of the financial world, if I can put it that way. 
Look, I think you need uh, outliers to uh, create um, interest in, in new things. And uh, there was an extreme in terms of, you know, libertarian values kind of driving the use of this so that you didn't have authorities at all of any kind and people could move value between themselves. But I think uh, a lot of the hype around a digital currency that's going to replace, you know, existing fiat currencies uh, has gone away. And I think the understanding now is that the real innovation is in the distributed ledger technology that underpins the blockchain, not so much the digital currency itself. Ripple uses a variation of blockchain called distributed financial technology or distributed ledger. Dilip Rao cites an example of how it works with a cross-border payment. So the, the one central concept of a distributed ledger is the openness of the transaction. So we have a public ledger, so it's not a private ledger. So for example, nobody can see CBA's ledger. Nobody can see Wells Fargo's ledger. However, both banks in this case can see this public ledger on Ripple, which says there is a signed transaction by CBA. It won't say CBA, it'll have CBA's public key, and saying we are now paying $100 to Wells Fargo. And that transaction is available on the public ledger as a new source of truth, if you will, between these two banks. There is a great time saving. Can you explain how that happens? So today, if we want to move money between CBA and Wells Fargo, then CBA has to use something called a correspondent bank. Let's say that's JP Morgan. So today, they would debit your account, David, credit JP Morgan's account with them here. JP Morgan would then pay out to Wells Fargo in the United States. So if you paid at 100 Aussie, they'd pay out 80 US, let's say, to Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo would then have to run their ledger system to update it and credit my account at Wells Fargo in the US for 80 US. So it's gonna go like a relay race. One ledger update at CPA, another ledger update at JP Morgan, a third ledger update at Wells Fargo before the money actually settles to my account. So we're eliminating all of those handoffs and the possibility of breakages in between. So something happens in between, JP Morgan doesn't credit wells and your money hasn't arrived. You can also provide certainty of delivery so that when this transaction executes on the Ripple ledger, immediately Wells Fargo can say, we've credited the lip and you, David, can know right away that I've received the money. And all of that has happened in about five to six seconds between the two banks. So certainty of delivery in a short period of time creates huge value for customers. And presumably it removes some costs in handling. Correct, so today, you know, the way banks uh, reconcile these transactions is the money actually moves in bulk. So nobody moves $100 from CBA to JP Morgan to Wells Fargo. They accumulate all these transactions through the day and at the end of the day, they might move 100 or $10 million from CBA to JP Morgan back to Wells. All of those had to be reconciled against these transactions. The $100 transaction you did, $200 somebody else did. So this is a reconciliation process that happens for several days after this transaction is completed. So it is a back office that is gonna reconcile these transactions. So these are all costs that banks incur. So we are eliminating a lot of those costs because this simple transaction has actually been settled in real time, there is no day two work to, do, to be done for reconciling this transaction. How important is it for the established banks, among other financial players, to be on board with this, do you think? Well, uh, at Ripple, we see this more as an enabling technology rather than a disruptive technology. And the reason for that is 
we are providing a back-end set of rails, or global rails, if you will, for banks to utilize. So it's the existing incumbents who can use this technology to reinvent their services and the way they deal with each other. Ripple doesn't touch the front-end customers, so banks will still you know, provide the user experience for the bank, for the customer to send money or receive money. They will provide the pricing, uh, but they've eliminated a lot of the costs, they've eliminated a lot of the risks, they have reduced a lot of the time required to solve the problem. So we think that it will result in very, uh, you know, a number of innovative services, whether it's to retail customers for remittances, small businesses for imports and exports, or for, for corporates, even large institutions, to do big end transactions between each other on a global basis. So the theory of what you've described sounds incredibly sound. In practical terms, how difficult is it to implement it successfully? Are there hurdles to jump? Absolutely. I mean, anytime you move uh, value, uh, in this case, there are obviously going to be protection mechanisms that have to be in place. So the anti-money laundering, counterterrorism financing, compliance obligations that institutions have today still have to be complied with. So in fact, they have to do it faster. So some of the things that uh, are hurdles to implementation of this technology is how do we re-engineer our existing applications so we can do the same checks that we had two days to do in and how do we do that now so that it's done before this transaction is executed in five seconds? So you actually have to speed up your processes to leverage this technology. So uh, we are offering our technology to license institutions which already understand these obligations and can re-engineer their systems to deliver the same level of comfort and security to regulators and to their customers, even though the transaction now is significantly more efficient and faster. A lot of the work you're doing, it seems to me, is in uh, cross-border payments. Yeah, look, we think that the underpinning, if you will, for all applications of this kind of technology will, at some point or the other, require the movement of value. So we think cross-border payments is where there is a lot of friction. If you pitch out 10 years, how do you see this affecting the financial services landscape? See, I think all uh, countries and all regulators and all banks are interested in new infrastructure that creates a cheaper and more efficient platform for payments. Nobody wakes up in the morning wanting to make a payment. It's the most boring thing that anybody would want to do. But you want to buy stuff, you want to sell stuff, you want to trade with somebody, you want to do things which then require you to either generate some value or you know, hand over some value. You want to make that as ubiquitous as possible. You don't really want to be bothered. So there is a lot of innovation around the customer front end today. You know, so you know, Apple gets a lot of credit for a very slick user experience. I can buy music off uh, anywhere I go without having to put in my credit card details because Apple makes it easy to do that. So these kinds of innovations are still utilizing the same infrastructure that banks have been using for many, many years. So that infrastructure of bank accounts, of interbank clearing, of credit cards hasn't really changed. What distributed ledgers do and technologies like Triple do is enable the creation of new set of rails across everybody in the world, which then will mean that you can have significantly more innovation uh, built on top of these new rails. Um, so I think 
being able to do things when you want to do it, where you want to do it, without having to think about it, without having to bother about it, yet having confidence in the security and the integrity of those transactions is kind of the new dream. If you think about an application like remittances, people are sending $200 today home to their families. They were working in Hong Kong, sending money to the Philippines. The average cost that they're paying for this is anywhere between 7 and 10%. Now, you might say 10% of $200, you know, is not a lot of money, but it could make the difference for a family uh, significantly. So if we can change the fundamental infrastructure for these payments to happen, that obviously creates uh, jobs, it helps generate value in the economy, it delivers benefits to people. And I think that's why it's an incredibly exciting place to be in. That's why I'm working at Ripple. This has been the final in the Finzia podcast series on fintech. If you've missed any and want to catch up, please go to the website, finzia.com. Thanks for joining us.